The following podcast was produced by attorneys licensed to practice law in Indiana. The laws vary state by state, so if you have a legal question, contact a qualified attorney in your area. The information in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be relied on as legal advice. If the MCPO were a gang, what would be your street name? <laughs> no, your street name. T, T. Sizzle. <laughs> oh, my street name? I don't know. Hello, welcome to the Indie Law Pod. My name is Matt Bigler, former deputy prosecutor and current personal injury attorney at Leydendorf Law. This is a podcast by lawyers for people who may not have a legal education. Each episode, we're going to dive into a different legal area or law-related topic. Today, I'm pleased to sit down with Marion County Prosecutor Terry Curry to shed some light on what goes on in the inside of the Marion County Prosecutor's Office. Thanks for talking with me, Terry. Sure. Some people may not know, but prosecutors in Indiana are elected. So how long have you been serving as the Marion County Prosecutor? Uh, I am completing uh, my uh, second term, so I am in my eighth year as prosecutor. And you are running for your third term this fall against the Republican candidate, Ben Strom. What is the theme of your campaign this year? Uh, I don't know that we have a definitive theme yet at this point, uh, other than you know, we've talked about uh, that we have a proven track record. Uh, and that uh, we have met significant challenges uh, here in the last eight years, um, such as the Officer Bassard case that goes back to our early years, the Richmond Hill explosion case uh, in more recent years, and that uh, we've met those challenges, significant challenges, and uh, prepared to meet the challenges going forward. The Marion County office is, is obviously very big. It's probably the, it is the biggest prosecutor's office in the state, right? That is correct. Now, in the smaller counties where I had started, the, the elected prosecutor, because it was a smaller office, she did have a caseload, so to speak. Would it be correct to say that the Marion County prosecutor is more of a management position, that you don't have a chance to be in court every day like the deputies? Unfortunately, that is true. Uh, uh, you know, I, I consider myself, first and foremost, a, a trial attorney. Uh, that's what I've done in my entire legal career. Uh, but in an office this size, it's not practical to do that. I keep my hand in it handful of cases, uh, some of which have uh, resolved by plea, and as it turned out, I've tried uh, uh, one case in each of my uh, first two terms. Um, how many employees uh, do you manage here at the prosecutor's office? Uh, we have almost 400 employees, uh, 185 of them are attorneys or deputy prosecutors, so we're the equivalent of the third largest law firm in the city. Wow. So how do you feel about the prosecutor being an elected position? And by that, I mean do you think there's, is there some objective difference between how a generic Democrat might run an office versus a generic Republican? Do you see it as a political difference or just management styles of people? Uh, I have said uh, any number of times, um, going back to 2010 when I was first a candidate, that uh, the uh, office, uh, as, or as prosecutor, uh, it is you should not be political. Uh, in, in this position, and by that I mean probably what's obvious, and that is you can't make decisions based upon political consideration. But in my mind, then, I, I make a distinction between being political and being partisan. And by that I mean that as being partisan, that you can bring your priorities uh, and uh, fundamental philosophical um, ideas uh, to the job. And then... Uh, in terms of the first part of your question, no, I, I don't think it's it's uh, inappropriate that it's an elected position. It's a constitutional office, as in any um, a political uh, campaign. Uh, what what 
what you have to do is articulate, you know, how you're going to approach the job and, and what, what are your priorities. And, and just briefly in terms of, you know, going back to my uh, reference to being partisan, is that you know, we, we fully believe and, and put into practice that we should do everything we can to get uh, individuals out of the criminal justice system um, for uh, minor offenses and, and to deal with mental health issues, to deal with substance abuse issues, approach those cases in, in a significantly different way than we would, say, an individual who's committed a horrible, violent crime. The genesis for, for me doing this podcast originally was as an attorney, reading the Facebook comments that people would make and law-related stories. So, like, in the comment section on a story about a charging decision or a jury verdict or a sentencing, there are invariably going to be comments that I'd like you uh, to address uh, if you can. First, you'll hear someone say about a, like a charging decision that it's racially biased. And how would you respond to that? I think the, the perfect way to respond to that is that uh, we were... Um, actually in a, a town hall meeting uh, that was very, very contentious. It was during the middle of the Aaron Bailey controversy. And that accusation was not just in comments, it was being made directly uh, at me in this particular meeting, um, both in terms of uh, charging decisions or, or plea agreements, uh, yeah, the, the allegation being made that we treated white defendants differently than minority defendant. And, and another attorney there was actually a public defender. He is African-American, and uh, he actually spoke up uh, on his own and said, you know, I interact with Mr. Curry's office, prosecutor's office, every day, and that is simply not true. Um, that he came to our defense, and certainly you know, we, do, we, not, we do not make decisions uh, based upon an individual's uh, sexual orientation, uh, race, uh, any of those things. We look at the cases objectively. Another comment that I see frequently on Facebook would be like a, in response to a not guilty verdict. So not guilty verdicts happen. People say something to the effect of, you know, the prosecutors are lazy or ineffective or no good. How would you respond to that? Well, the first and foremost is that um, going back another lifetime ago when I was a deputy prosecutor, uh, to the present, uh, it's just abundantly clear that many people come into uh, the court to serve as a juror with a different attitude that, than used to be the case. And you know, I, I think I can identify a couple of reasons why that is. And, you know, one you know, which is everyone watching CSI uh, and have unreasonable expectations about what's feasible to be uh, established in an investigation and a prosecution. Uh, and secondly, uh, to the extent that, uh, you know, virtually every case to one degree or another involves the police is there, you know, whether right or wrong, uh, many uh, in the public have just a different attitude uh, toward the police. Um, you know, when I was a deputy prosecutor and trying cases, you know, the, the general attitude seemed to be that, you know, if the police said this happened, uh, then they were inclined to believe it. Um, now there's clearly... Uh, you know, again, whether right or wrong, uh, a little more skepticism um, uh, by individuals who come in and serve as jurors. Um, and, you know, and then we just you know, uh, encounter all the problems you're, you're aware of. You know, doing the DUI cases, uh, you probably didn't encounter 
the problem of having reluctant witnesses, you know, but obviously, you know, our deputy prosecutors are doing violent crime cases, they're doing um, uh, drug cases, gun cases, um, just every single day encounter issues with uh, uh, individuals, even victims, who uh, declined to cooperate with our office and with the police. It, do you think, I mean, particularly with the major felonies, not, you know, disorderly conduct, public intoxication, you know, whatever. Uh, but with the major felonies, do you think that uh, witness cooperation ends up being one of the, the biggest hurdles that the prosecution and police have to, to face? Yeah, in, in terms of those cases, there, there's no question uh, that that's um, the, the biggest obstacle uh, we face. I, I literally maintain a file um, of kind of the most uh, extreme examples of that and uh, you know, just constantly emphasizing to the press and the public, you know, that what a problem that is for us. And it's not just individuals who are scared or intimidated. That's that's one aspect of it. But also, um, there are individuals who are just going to abide by the code of the street, uh, no snitching. Uh, and then we have other individuals who are just going to get their own justice. Um, and, and, and then I, I, there's really kind of even a fourth category in that, that yeah, they're just individuals who just don't want to be bothered, you know, that it's, it's, it's an inconvenience for them. Um, and as a consequence, they're going to try to make themselves scarce um, or recant on what they initially told the police. Um, and yeah, it's something we deal with every single day. And it's even more critical when you have a key, if a key witness gets cold feet for one reason or another, that can sink a case a lot of times. If it's, sure. the, if it's the key witness. Sure. Example. I mean, we, we are faced with the prospect uh, uh uh, often faced with the prospect of either making a decision to uh, <clears throat> dismiss a case uh, or uh, resolve it in some way that is, is not you know, what we would uh, anticipate or hope for, uh, but for the fact that we've lost the cooperation of witnesses. As a, as a sidebar, when I started with the office in 2011, uh, the economy generally was still recovering from the, the crash and the Great Recession. Uh, there wasn't much movement. People stayed in their spot, whatever it was, for years. So since probably 2015, as I perceive it, there's been a ton of movement uh, within the prosecutor's office and people leaving the prosecutor's office. Uh, people are going from starting out to doing major felonies within, I don't know, a year and a half or maybe two years. How do you address those kind of experience challenges where you have a lot of young prosecutors doing big cases? Well, first of all, you're, you're right in that, uh, you know, we... It kills me when a Matt Bigler will leave the office, or you know others who have proven themselves to be really good trial attorneys. Um, but on the other hand, you know I'm happy for them. You know that you, know, you can get other opportunities. I know, you know that absent some unusual circumstances, um, we can't anticipate that our attorneys are going to stay here, you know, for for 20 years. You know, you've got to go out and, and um, take advantage of the opportunity to to make more money and support the family and. And uh, so we know that's going to happen. Uh, I think the way, the, the primary way that we fill the gaps and continue to uh, have excellent attorneys at every level is we have such a robust intern program. You know, at any given time, you know, we have uh, 40 to 60 interns in the office. Um, and uh, so the consequence, um, we have individuals who uh, have been in the office 
Uh, they know the procedures in the office. They've sat in on trials. They've, uh, if they've reached a certain point, they've then participated in trials. And so when we have those openings, then uh, you know, we have a ready uh, pool of young attorneys who uh, are ready to basically jump right in immediately. Uh, the, we had a, uh, an intern class of 14 interns uh, from last summer's bar. Uh, all 14 uh, passed the bar. All 14 wanted to work in our office. Uh, and, uh, and now I think we're up to 11 or 12 of that class now, now are here. And so as a consequence, you know, it's, it's not like we take someone, you know, from their last day of law school and hire them as an attorney. Then they have this learning curve about how you're going to try cases, you know, what, what the procedures are in the office. Uh, we have, like I said, this ready pool of young attorneys who want to work here, um, and can hit the ground running. Speaking of the intern program, uh, I was going to ask about this later as well. So I've been told that with the new judicial center that they're building on the, the Fountain Square area, mm -hmm. uh, or whatever the neighborhood is there, that they're not going to have a building for the prosecutors at the beginning. Is that correct? Or is that the plan? Uh, I am not 100% uh, certain what the plan is at this point, but I, I, my sense is that... Uh, Whatever the complex ultimately looks like, it will be done in phases. Whether that means that there'll be a jail and then courts and then a facility for us, uh, or a jail and a and a courts and then a law building down the road, uh, I'm not 100% certain. Uh, I, I do feel that um, there will not be uh, a building for us uh, from day one. The possibility of not having a building on day one for the prosecutors at the new judicial center, you know, whatever it is built, um, the concern for me would be for those those young interns, those young attorneys, not having a chance to go and watch trials. I mean, that was one of the the biggest benefits to working here as an intern. You get to go see experienced attorneys do an opening statement, do a jury selection. Uh, is that a concern for you that you know, some of your people may not have a chance to go and, and observe as much as they did before? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it would not not just for the interns, but for everyone, you know, that uh, obviously here uh, walking uh, about a half block over the city county building, it's easy to uh, be able to interact with the courts uh, uh, in any way necessary. Uh, and it's clearly going to be inconvenient uh, to um, go back and forth, uh, say, 15 minutes down the road to, to um, a new facility. Um, but if that's the case, then you know our challenge would be just to find ways to, to accomplish uh, that what you've suggested, which is to be able to have individuals go sit in on, on a trial. Because obviously, you've been here, you know that's exactly what happens. You know, you go uh, in any given case, and not, not only you'll see interns and younger attorneys. I mean, you'll see major felony deputies who. Who then will go and watch uh, one of their colleagues uh, try a case because you can always just learn something from each other. Uh, so it's just a, a practical problem that we would have to find a way to address. All right. The next uh, Facebook comment I wanted to talk about uh, you'll hear people say after a sentencing that the sentencing was too light because liberal prosecutors or, or judges. Um, so, why do you think how much of a, how much of a sentence? is the result of someone just being liberal versus statutes, case law, and reality. 
Well, first and foremost, uh, uh, no one should ever uh, uh, read Facebook posts and, and comments to press articles. <laughs> but uh, uh, if you do, then um, uh, the response is, is obvious, which is you, the, the sentencing range on any given case is, is established by statute, by law. Um, the, you know, the courts obviously follow that. You know, you've been here, you know that uh, uh, different judges have different sentencing tendencies, uh, but everyone in the system, uh, the goal is to have a resolution that's fair under the circumstances. Uh, are there sentences that frustrate us? Sure. Uh, but uh, again, uh, everyone's operating under the parameters that are established you know, by, by the criminal code. You know, and part of that, particularly in the last couple of years, uh, was the about three years ago, uh, the, the criminal code was um, completely revised um, for the first time since the 1980s uh, in terms of an overall revision. And the legislature clearly was sending a message that, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but it, it was clearly the message is, you know, we should be incarcerating those individuals that we're scared of, not the ones we're mad at. And in terms of, you know, our, our judges, um, you know, they, they heard that message. And then the other part of it, it's just like, you know, whether it's a sentence or a plea agreement, um, you know, the reaction of the uh, public who react negatively to uh, a plea or a sentence is they're, they're reacting based upon some press report. And so, you know, we know, you know every nuance of the case, every circumstance of the case, um, and uh, we can't, uh, we've got to be a little thick-skinned and not worried about you know, the Monday morning quarterbacks who are, again, basing uh, a response on a three-paragraph story in the Indianapolis Star. <laughs> Indianapolis has had a record number of murders in recent years. What do you see as the prosecutor's office's role in trying to find a solution? Well, the, the first and foremost, obviously, our, our fundamental uh, responsibility is, is to prosecute those cases that, you know, after it has occurred. Uh, and, uh, uh, but uh, we um, participate with our law enforcement partners uh, in any number of ways to um, try to be more strategic about each of our jobs to address the, the violent crime problem that, that we're facing. Um, and uh, the, I guess two examples, the most obvious examples is um, you know, we started, we established about two years ago, a uh, strategic prosecution unit, which consists of a deputy prosecutor and three analysts. Um, and we identify uh, through a variety of ways, individuals that we then, uh, label within our systems as priority offenders, that individuals who we believe are intimately involved in, in uh, violent crime. Uh, and, and as a consequence, when they hit our system, are flagged and, and we're paying extra attention to those individuals. That process dovetails, uh, what we've done within the office dovetails perfectly with Chief Roach reestablishing IBRP, the Annapolis Violence Reduction Project, uh, which was uh, something that was done here years ago. Uh, 
those in our office who were here at the time believed that it was effective. Um, and, um, and Frank Straub uh, disbanded it uh, when he was here. And Chief Roach now has, has reinstituted with, with actually some tweaking. The point being that we're all then trying to be more strategic about uh, our jobs and, and certainly the, the goal is to uh, essentially be able to intervene, for lack of a better word, um, with those individuals who are likely to be committing violent crime or correspondingly likely to be a victim of a violent crime. Uh, and uh, we're, we're hopeful that you know, that will uh, provide some uh, progress in reducing violent crime. Having said all of that, you, we have to be realistic. I mean, these are complex problems, uh, and there is no easy solution. But, but I do believe that the, the cooperation uh, that I've mentioned, and which certainly includes the U.S. Attorney's Office, every single federal investigative agency, uh, you know, we're, we're all uh, uh, pulling in the same direction, and I think little by little, you know, we'll start to make a dent in, in the violent crime we're having. Moving on to the policies of the office, and, and this kind of dovetails with the violent crime discussion they're just having with the murders. Your office has filed death penalty and life without parole cases several times uh, in your eight years, correct? Well, we filed four capital cases. In capital meaning uh, death, penalty. death penalty, and then you've had several more life without parole, yeah, right? Yeah, a few, yeah. So how does the MCPO determine whether a case will be a death penalty or LWAP versus just doing a general prosecution. Yeah. As you know, first of all, that you know, not just any murder qualifies for uh, death penalty or LWAP consideration. Um, there has to be certain aggravating circumstances um, which are set out by statute, one of which would be the intentional killing of a public safety officer uh, while in the line of duty. So our policy is this, that uh, if we have uh, a murder in which there's aggravating circumstances present. Um, we we have a committee process uh, that includes, first of all, those of us on the management team uh, and the deputy prosecutor. Uh, usually, it's the supervisor in whatever major felony court the case lands in, and whoever's going to be involved in trying the case. Uh, and we will meet um, and discuss the case. Uh, we will meet with the family to talk about, and I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, we often will solicit uh, uh, input from uh, defense counsel. Usually that's the public defender's office. You know, does this have individual have a history of substance abuse, uh, mental health issues, the things that might uh, not be relevant for purposes of the underlying crime, but would be pertinent if, if it became a death penalty case. Um, uh, and... Uh, um, what we will do is once we've gone through those initial steps, uh, we will reconvene again, review it again, and, and make a decision uh, as to whether to file it or not file it. Um, we, um, we started this policy when I took office because uh, I feel it's important that we be objective, oh, completely objective about this decision. Uh, you know, the, uh, invariably, uh, these circumstances are, are going to, everyone's going to be angry about what transpired, you know, whether it's Kenneth Rackman in a quadruple homicide, 
that just that meets senseless violence. Uh, Jonathan Cruz, the purge killer, who was like acting out a movie. Uh, you know, the families are clearly going to be uh, outraged, angry, understandably. Uh, we are as well. But at some point, uh, to make that significant decision, we need to kind of step back uh, and, and make a, a decision that's appropriate under the circumstances. And as it relates to the family, uh, what we, we convey to the family in the initial meeting is, you know, we want to hear out their feelings, but also just to make sure that they understand that, particularly as a, as a death penalty case, how protracted that's going to be. Uh, and they're going to be having to live with this case uh, uh, for an extended period of time. Uh, that uh, those cases can easily uh, stretch out 10, 15, 20 years uh, as the whole process plays out. And I, I've been in meetings where uh, I've shared this with, with the individual participating in, in, say, neighborhood association meetings that, you know, what the public needs to understand is that you know, if, if Matt Bigler reads a story about it and, and he is furious about what happened um, two weeks from now, three weeks from now, you know, that's not going to be something that, that's part of Matt Bigler's life. The family is going to be living with this you know, for years and years and years. And you know, in the cases that we've had uh, where we've resolved the death penalty cases, uh, other than one uh, individual family member, uh, once we've, we've gone through it with the family, um, they've gone through, say, a few months or several months of the case, without exception, the family members, what's important to them is the finality and certainty of a result. Uh, in every single case, the, the knowledge that the individual who killed their family member will never leave prison, that all of that is much more important than, than, than pursuing death penalty case um, and so I, I, I it's one of the things that we did, did from day one that obviously I called appropriate and, and has, has worked well in dealing with these horrible situations and is it hard to divorce yourselves from emotion versus the law and the case I'm thinking of is that a little girl that baby that was killed in the drive-by uh, recently mm -hmm. that uh, as I understand it the, the the determination was it wasn't, they had no uh, particular intent to kill that girl and that a knowing murder doesn't qualify for death penalty. So how do you divorce yourself from that, you know, that feeling that I would have or I have that, you know, if you kill a baby in such a senseless way, you ought to be put to death mm -hmm. or have at least, you know, have it, have that be a possibility versus it not being legally appropriate. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, we're attorneys, <laughs> and so our ultimate responsibility is is to do what's appropriate un, under the law. Uh, and you know, for us, you know, I feel it's appropriate. You, know, you were here. I mean, you know the sort of circumstances that we see, that we deal with, um, and and so it's it's entirely appropriate, and I think even healthy to have the human reaction. Uh, the, to these situations, uh, but then, you know, to do our job and step back and say, this is the law, this is, you know, what's uh, appropriate and possible and, and do do what's right. Uh, I can tell you that of all the things uh, that we've 
seen in eight years here, there was a, a three-year-old little girl named Amabelle Calderon. Uh, it makes me furious to this day to know what happened to this little three-year-old. Uh, but you know that's that's a, an example. You know, in that case, we filed an LWAP. Um, the because the defendant's uh, intellectual capacity was it was marginal and thus arguably might not qualify for um, death penalty or LWAP consideration. Um, you know, we resolved the case. I think the defendant got an 80-year sentence uh, and you know was effectively a life without parole. Um, but if, if you knew what happened to that little girl, uh, yeah, I mean, our reaction is the same as you know any member of the public. We should take this person and put him away forever. But, you know, we, we have to we have to step back from that. That's what we do. And do you consider the practical practical implications of a capital case? For example, a 75-year-old man stands accused of a triple murder. Mm -hmm. um, whether you do it as a life without parole, death penalty, or a general murder prosecution, if he's found guilty, he's going to have a life sentence. Mm -hmm. Is that something that uh, you all consider because of the extremely higher case or case expenses for a capital case or the uh, and the length of the appeal process for a capital case? Uh, not really. And it's, um, I mean, it, the, the, it's more what I've already said in terms of those considerations is is letting the family know, you know, and and, and it's a hard message. You know, we're we're meeting with people who have just lost a loved one to a, a violent act, um, and you know it's not a message they want to hear. But you know I feel it's appropriate to, to share with them, you know, what we're looking at when we go down that road. So it's it's not a significant consideration. Uh, in terms of capital cases, what you touched upon, well, though, uh, is a consideration in terms of the age and, and likely, you know, what's the result if we convict this person? Um, uh, and uh, I, I, we just have a perfect uh, recent example, Kevin Watkins, uh, who uh, was the bail bondsman who brutally murdered two teenage boys. Um, you know, because at the point at the time the, the case was filed, the two boys' bodies had not been found. Um, you know, we thought that would make be a complicating factor in terms of a LWAP or a death penalty case. We didn't file it, but correspondingly, we knew if we convicted him of those two murders, he's never leaving prison again. And obviously, he just got a 110-year sentence uh, for those murders. So yeah, that those sort of things are our considerations. The cost, no, not so much. Okay, um, I do have a couple other things to ask about, and I'm going to try to hurry them up because we are. Uh, taking up too much of your time already. That's fine. Uh, police action shootings are a hot button issue. Obviously, the Aaron Bailey, we're recording this on May 9th. Uh, the police board is uh, right now reviewing the two officers involved, or two of the officers involved in that. Mm -hmm. So, when a police action shooting mm -hmm. happens, does the MCPO review it through grand jury for charging, typically? Um, if, if there's the least um, bit of question about what transpired, Yes, we, we will present that case to a grand jury uh, to, to hear. Uh, if there's not, and the, the perfect example uh, is the death of Rod Bradway. Um, uh, Rod Bradway uh, was responding to a DV call. He, he uh, responded, heard the woman screaming inside, forced entry, and as he did, the suspect was behind the door and shot and killed Rod Bradway. The officer following in 
then return fire and, and kill the suspect. So, you know, in that circumstance, that is a police action shooting in which uh, uh, there has been a death. Uh, but, you know, uh, the, the uh, woman who was being rescued confirmed exactly what happened. Uh, there was zero question what transpired. And so you know, we, we cleared that. And so if, if there's just no doubt whatsoever, then we will clear it. Uh, if there uh, is e even just a minimal question about what transpired, uh, then we will present to grand jury for determination. Would that go the other way? And I'm thinking of that case out of South Carolina where that man was running away and an officer shot him in the back and then like dropped a taser next to him. If you had something that was so obvious the other direction, that mm -hmm. something is going on, uh, would you still refer that to the grand jury as a policy, or would that be would there be a chance that you would just file outright in some cases? No, if if there was clearly probable cause and and what appeared to be a, a case that could be prosecuted successfully, uh, we we would charge it outright. We you know we obviously have not charged any police officer uh, with a, a homicide. Um, you know we've not had one presented to us where we felt a crime was committed. Uh, in that such situation, but in now seven and a half years, we've, we've uh, prosecuted 62 police officers uh, for various crimes, from petty crimes to very serious crimes. For shootings, though, is that because of the, let's say, the different standard of what a reasonable police officer would do in a situation? It's, it's not as cut and dry as, you know, there's very few circumstances where someone's just going to be able to shoot somebody on the street, but, you know, a police officer would have authority to do so in given circumstances. So it is sensitive. Is that fair to say? Uh, the decision for a police officer to shoot is, you know, whether they had a reasonable fear of that. Well, exactly. Shoot. Exactly. Okay. You know, you know, you're, you're, you're on the right track. Exactly. And that is, and, and this is why I say all the time, you know, whether it was in, you know, leading up to the Aaron Bailey, obviously we referred to a special prosecutor, but in any situations that our role is to determine whether a crime was committed, you know, not whether it was done, uh, consistent with, you know, police policies, uh, use of force uh, procedures. Uh, our, for us, the question is whether a crime was committed, and you know whether it's a police officer or, or even a civilian. You know, it's kind of the same fundamental principle, and that is, uh, given the circumstances, you know, was it reasonable for the officer or the civilian to use force, including dead, deadly force? If they reasonably believed it was necessary to prevent death or, or serious bodily injury to themselves or someone else, uh, and that's that's the fundamental legal principle that applies in all these situations. Um, and you know, going back to the Officer Bradway situation, obviously uh, the the second officer uh, was entitled to to return fire uh, in that situation. Right. Marijuana laws are being liberalized across the country uh, at an increasing rate. Would it ever be something that you would consider to make it, I don't say a blanket rule, but make it a general policy for the office not to prosecute like a misdemeanor possession only case, not someone with a gun or warrants or something else, but would just a guy with a dime bag, would you ever consider having that kind of policy where you're just not going to worry about minor possession, for example? Well, uh, I guess the, <laughs> the last part of your question, not worry about it, it sort of uh, touches upon you know our our approach, and it's not that we don't worry about it. You know, fr 
from as the prosecutor, I feel it's our responsibility. As long as the legislature tells it's a crime, then we have the prosecutor as a crime. Now, as a practical matter, you know, barring some unusual circumstances, you know that that low-level um, drug offenses, particularly uh, you know, low-level possession of marijuana, uh, well, we handle those by diversion, virtually without exception. I mean, someone would have to have some horrible criminal history that wouldn't allow us to do a diversion. Uh, but you know, if you have a minimal criminal history or no criminal history and you, you're picked up with a, a very small amount of marijuana, just like other minor offenses, those will be resolved by, by a diversion where, you know, you, in, to explain what a diversion is, the individual uh, enters in a diversion agreement um, to comply with certain requirements on the diversion. They do so, then the case is dismissed against them and, and they have no conviction. All right. Um, and because of our efforts uh, working with uh, uh, particularly Senator Taylor and, uh, uh, and others in the legislature, uh, we helped write the expungement law that's in effect now. And so an individual who, who has uh, a, a diversion and thus the only thing they're going to show on their criminal history is the arrest, uh, no conviction, then in a relatively short period of time, they can expunge that, even that arrest from the record. Very cool. Um, all right, we're going to move on to a lightning round to wrap up. Uh, so do this. <laughs> if you could amend one part of the criminal code, what would it be? Well, at this point, um, the it goes back. Sorry, I'm just not a lightning answer here, but it goes back to what I was talking about about the criminal code revision. Um, the uh, legislature at that time uh, basically significantly reduced the number of cases in which a sentence is non-suspendable, um, and uh, one in particular was a serious violent felon. Uh, in possession of a firearm, which previously was a B felony, uh, which would be a six to 20 year sentence uh, and was non-suspendable under the prior code, now is a level four, two to 12 year sentence uh, and suspendable. Uh, I, I would amend it to say that that number one is non-suspendable. Uh, if you are SVF, then that means you've committed a serious prior felony and nevertheless you persist and still carrying a firearm around, you know, we strongly believe that that crime should be non-suspendable and perhaps even bumped up to a level three felony. All right. How do you pronounce the word? Lawyer or lawyer? Lawyer. I didn't go to law school. <laughs> uh, past tense of plead. Pleaded or pled? Pled. How do you pronounce the fancy name for jury selection? Wardier. Yeah, other, other being Wardier, I guess, depending on how other people say it. All right, that's all I have for today. Uh, thanks again, Terry, uh, for talking with me, and good luck with campaign this year. Thank you, Matt. Uh, if you have any comments about this podcast or any ideas for topics for us to, to discuss, you can email me at indylawpod at gmail.com. Uh, you can find this podcast and our past episodes at soundcloud.com forward slash indylawpod. <laughs>